All right, as we get started this morning, quick quiz. What is the most important thing, according to Jesus, that you can do with your life? And if you're at home, you can just shout it out in the room you're in, and that's fine. We're good. What's the most important thing you can do with your life? The most significant commandment? I'll work you towards it. The great commandment. Are you guys awake? I'm awake. <laughs> watermelon, 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 watermelon. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And all right, file that away. Keep that close at hand. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, just want to greet everyone and uh, glad to be back. David and I were gone for several weeks for some vacation, which was wonderful. Uh, we were in Utah, not far from Park City, so about 6,500 feet is where we were in a canyon, and that, that was good. And then we left there, and we went to the Mendocino Coast of Northern California, which is, if you've never been there, it's north of the wine country. It's like Big Sur, only better. So uh, it was wonderful. It was a great time, and it was uh, different being away from here. So when we were in Utah, even though I grew up in northern Arizona, I'd never done this before, and neither had Davette, even though she grew up owning horses. We went to a rodeo for the first time ever. And uh, we showed up at this rodeo. It was in this little tiny town called Tabiona, Utah. And it was a, it was a pretty legit rodeo. But um, as, as we're walking in, I'm looking around, and I'm, I, you know, picture this. I'm wearing my, my chino shorts and my my Oakley sunglasses, and I'm looking around at everyone else and going, my people, I have found my people, right? There, there was not a person to be seen who looked even remotely like me. I did have a baseball cap on, which everyone else seemed to if they weren't wearing a cowboy hat. Most of theirs had so-and-so's feed store, or Browning Rifles, or John Deere. Mine had an observatory, but we connected, <laughs> at least at, at some level, we connected. So, and then we left Utah, and kind of rural Utah, and we went then to Northern California in a place where if you've never been there, it's where all the hippies go who refuse to die. It, some of you may be old enough to remember, in fact, after the first service, somebody came out and named the Japanese soldier who, re, who finally surrendered in 1974 for World War II. He just refused to acknowledge that the war was over. Well, that's kind of like what the Mendocino Coast is like. It's a bunch of hippies that have refused to acknowledge that 1974 is actually over. In fact, I think they still want McGovern to be elected as president, and uh, it's, it's just quite this study in contrasts. In, in one place, I'm, I'm walking around, and I'm in a forest of one-ton pickup trucks, and in the next place, I'm knee-deep in hybrids and Subarus, right? In Utah, we ate at the place that people recommended. In the little place we were staying, it even had a recommendation for it, it highlighted it especially, and it was this restaurant in a gas station in the actual like AM, PM building kind of place. So you could go to the counter and pay for your gas, pump your gas, you could go buy your chips or your aspirin, or you could sit down at the table and they would bring you your food, right? And they specialized in all things fried. <laughs> so then we moved, went to Northern California where it was baked goods of a very particular sort, right out on the street there. They had brownies that were really expensive. I guess these <laughs> must have been pretty special brownies. I didn't try one. But it was, just, it was just a contrast. And uh, I am glad to be back with you. I feel like I fit a little bit more naturally here. 
Um, but as I was thinking about those contrasts and being here, I realized, you know, in Utah, in rural Utah, where it's a lot of cowboys, Jesus looks at them and goes, my people. And in northern, northern coast of California, where it's a bunch of hippies, he looks at them and goes, my people. And he comes to Whittier and says, my people. And he looks at you and says, my people. Right? He, he came for all of us. He embraces all of us. And the differences that we sometimes highlight, and in fact, in our culture, are getting hyper-highlighted and creating a lot of tension, are, are more superficial than we really want to admit or really acknowledge or, or notice. Some of them are significant enough, but they're not fundamental. At the very heart of who we are, we are the same. We are the same. It goes beyond our politics and our skin color and our preference. It goes way beyond those things. There's things about us that are fundamentally human. In fact, I would suggest that the reason the people in rural Utah were the way they were and the reason the people in Northern California were the way they were was exactly the same reason. And it's exactly the same reason that our culture here is the way that it is. And it's what drives our whole culture. There's a value that is this inviolable value in our minds that says, you be you. And your calling and your mandate is to be the best you you can be. And I think the people in Utah are just trying to do that, and that's how they picture it. And I think the people in Northern California are just trying to do that, and they, that's how they picture it. And that dynamic, that your calling, your mandate is to be the best you, you can be is really prominent in our culture. I'm sure you've noticed it. And you know what? It is exactly right. That is exactly the dynamic that is to drive our lives. The problem is not the target. It's the roadmap. The people in Utah have one picture. The people in Mendocino Coast have another picture. The question is, what's the right picture? I am to be the best version of me that I can be. But why would I think I actually know what that is? I mean, I've lived with me long enough to know I don't know what I'm talking about, about a whole lot of things, including about me. And I'll go this way, and it's like, no, I should have gone that way. And I'm pretty sure I know better than you do what the best version of me is, and I still don't know what that is. The problem is not the value, it's, it's, it's the roadmap. And as we come to our passage this morning, Jesus is really ultimately saying, I have made it possible for you to be the best you you can be, and I've got the roadmap. Here's the right one. The reason so many things are going so awry is because everyone's writing their own script, and they're all messed up. But if you come and bring yourself into the script that I've written and am writing, or more accurately, if you'll let me bring you into it, you will be the best you you can possibly be. You will be filled with joy. Joy not just like, oh, that was nice, but joy like God's joy overflowing. A universe-breaking joy. That's yours. You will be fruitful. Your life will be rich and significant and meaningful and impacting. And you will know and live radical love. So if you have a Bible, open to John chapter 15, please.
I'm going to read it, and then I'll explain a little bit about the structure, and then we're going to focus on two key points, because that's what John wants us to focus on. Um, and and as, as we read it, I just want to point out um, one little marker in the text that will help us. We're going to read 17 verses. If you look at verse 12, it says, this is, I com- this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then verse 17 says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. When you find that kind of structure, it says almost word for word the same thing. It's saying this is a section. And everything in that section has to be read through that lens which is helpful to us because one through 17 have all these interpenetrating, interwoven themes. And there's a center of gravity in the first part that's a little different than the center of gravity in the second part, but the themes kind of intertwine, but there's a clear break that says, all right, we're moving from the kind of the, 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 the thrust of the first section and advancing it further into this expression in the second section. And if you think of it maybe as a tapestry, it's sometimes hard to trace each thread. You could do that if you took the time. You could do that, but it's not really going to be that helpful to us. It would take a lot of time. We're going we're to get enough perspective to see the whole picture. And as we do that, we're going to see there's something significant that's happened, and there's two responses or, or two emphases that God wants us to have in order to, to live in that significant change. So if you want to follow along, it says, I am the true vine. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is just before he's crucified, the night before he's crucified. I am the true vine, and my, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned." If you abide in me and my word abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay, so let's, let's get an overarching view and then we'll dive into our two key emphasis points. First thing we need to notice is everything is changing. There's a new reality that's being birthed. Jesus is on the very verge of the crucifixion, and so he's speaking with that in mind, and he's saying the the page of history is turning. There's a sea change. There's a seismic shift in reality that's beginning right now, and I'm bringing you into that, 
And I want you to live in that reality. You're able to do that. Nobody else before you actually was fully able to do that. You are able to do that because I'm giving you resources that nobody else had. And as you do that, that's when your best life happens. That's when you live the life that will flood you with the joy that is God's to the full. That's when you will be incredibly fruitful. That's when, in fact, my Father will be glorified. What was taken out of the center at the very beginning will be restored to the center. I will be vindicated. People will know that you're my disciples. They'll see that. All of these good things that will give you the richness of life that everyone is seeking, I'm bringing that to you right now because of this massive shift. And I want you to learn to live in that massive shift. Now remember, Jesus is about to be crucified He'll, he'll rise from the dead, spend a few days with his disciples, and go back to heaven. So he's, if you will, cramming as much um, understanding into their heads and hearts as he can. And uh, as he does this, he's, he's got this, this massive change on his mind, and that's, that's where we are. If you want to look, verse 1 says, I am the true vine. That little modifying word true is important, right? He doesn't just say, I am the vine, it's not just a metaphor to say, here's, here's how life in, in Jesus works. I'm the vine, you're the branch. My life flows through you as you learn to cooperate, and now fruit comes, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit flowing through. That's all true. That's all good, but that's not sufficient. He's saying something more because he makes a point. He says, I am the true vine. And what he's saying with that is everything's shifted. The rules have changed. Reality's different. All of the failures of the past, there have been people and seasons and times who've really tried in their own way to, to get to where they need to be and see things restored, and it's never worked. It's always broken because of their sin, because of their failure, because they've been insufficient, and now that's changing because I'm doing it. The, the idea of a vine, the picture of a vine was a common image that God used talking about Israel, his people. Over and over again, it shows up in the Old Testament, and pretty much without exception, it's in a negative kind of tone because it's a bad vine. It is a failing vine. It is an unfaithful vine. It is a fruitless vine, or the fruit is rotten. It's, it's just not working because the people aren't living in right relationship to God. They're not responding to God. And so over and over again, it's about how he's going to remove them, how he's going to change them, how he's going to judge them because it's not working. And Jesus comes along and says, you know that? That's all changing right now. I'm the vine. I'm the real one. I work. Everything shifts. What Israel was supposed to accomplish, I'm actually going to accomplish. In fact, we've seen this multiple times in John where Jesus, in a sense, is, is a new new iteration of what God's doing through Israel. Now he's doing it in Jesus, only he's doing it perfectly, right? He's, he's stepping into a role that was failed at, and, and he's saying now it's going to happen rightly and truly, and you get to be a part of that. That's the foundation for me calling you to this. You can actually live this life. The life that you have longing for, you can actually live. Now it's it's going to be a bit of a mixed reality, Right, he's going to give us, for instance, a very lofty picture of this ideal of living in love. That's the same John who wrote 1 John that wrestles with, yeah, that's kind of tough. 
and it's a bit of a struggle, but keep in the struggle, and here's how to do that, right? So he's, he's, not, he's not naive, but he's saying everything shifts right now with me, and you're connected to me, so the world has just moved, and you get to live this new life. He picks it up in that second section in um, verse 15 when he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, we are called servants of God. So what's he saying? He's saying, yeah, it was different. There's something profound that's shifted. Throughout all of history, everyone's supposed to serve God and those that are his followers or his servants, but you have a different relationship, a fundamentally, organically different relationship than anyone did before, and that's why I call you friends. And God is revealing things to you that he never revealed to anyone else, and he's letting you be a part of things with your understanding that others never would have guessed at. There's this massive shift. In light of that massive shift, what he's looking for is that we would live that life out and be fruitful. That fruitfulness is everything that a life in Jesus is supposed to look like, us becoming like him, us spreading the good news, right? In verse 16, it talked about our going, just kind of mentions it as a matter of fact. But it's like, it's the whole package, the mission of God and the, the life in Christ and, and especially life in the body and our connection to God are going to be in view. And that's where we get to the two things he wants us to really lean into. And I'm sure they'll come as a, a complete surprise to you, these, these two emphases, because you probably didn't pick up on it in the text. The first one is abide. It's like, abide, 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 abide. I think he wants us to talk about abiding. And then the second one is love. Love, 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 love. He wants us to talk about love. He says it over and over and over and over again. And this new life has a lot of components that flow from our relationship with God, but the things he wants us to lean into. So I want you to start with abiding, get that anchored, and then out of that will flow this radical love. So I want to talk about that, but I want to show you one more thing. Um... This is a pretty important question, right? And we are empowered to live the life he calls us to. First, the empowerment. Look in verse 2. Jesus says, every branch in me. Here's a fundamental shift. There's a union with God that's different than anyone enjoyed before. You are now in me, and my life will literally flow through you. That's a different level of enablement when I learn to live with that, right? Reading on a little bit further down in verse 2, it's talking about the Father. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. There's this picture of God taking initiative in our lives. This is going to happen. This, the reality that Jesus is seeking to accomplish is going to happen because God's actually going to make it happen. He's, it, it's, I don't have to just do all the work here. God's already at work on me. He's shaping me. He's molding me. He's moving me. And it's more about cooperating with than it is trying to figure things out. Right? In fact, verse 3, if, if you read it casually, sounds like it's going in a totally different direction. He talks about pruning and a vine. And then verse 4 talks about pruning and a vine. Verse 2 and four seem to have this gap, and verse three seems to go in a different direction. You're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. 
But if you know that the word clean is essentially the same word as prune, it makes sense. He's saying God is pruning the vine, God is pruning the branches to make them more fruitful. That's already going on in you because you've been listening to me. The pruning's already taken place. You are being cleaned and made more fruitful through the word that's been delivered. So there's this enablement that comes from God. He takes that further in verse 16. When he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I don't have any regrets. You're not a mess up, right? I knew who you were and I picked you for my team and I said, here's who you're gonna be, right? I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I'm doing this. So we see that there's a union with Christ. There's a, an active engagement that God is taking initiative in our life. And then the third thing that we see is, and we also have the ability to ask for God's help in, in ways that people could always ask before, but there's a, new, there's a new dynamic to it. Look in verse 7. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. People were always able to pray, but now prayer has, a, it has just an extra bite to it, a really significant extra bite. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying the world is shifting. You're in me. You get to live a whole new kind of reality, and you live it in the world so that you will impact the world. All kinds of great things will happen. Don't be overwhelmed by that. You can do this. You're connected to me. God's taking the initiative and carrying it out. And you have the power of prayer at a whole level that other people never even dreamed of. And I want you to choose to live the vine life. Right? If you choose that, then all kinds of good things come. You're fruitful. God is glorified. Jesus is vindicated, and you get this God-sized joy. If, on the other hand, you reject that, if that's the choice you make, you get two things. First, nothing. You get nothing. Verse 5. Whoever's in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Zero, like a placeholder. That's what your life turns out to be. It's like the hand in water that you pull it out and it doesn't change. Now, is he saying that somebody who's apart from the vine can't be a great artist or a great parent or a great leader? No. No, there are still things that are within our ability because we're still maintain some of the image of God and his common graces at work but it's fundamentally different. The eternal dimension, which grounds everything, is lost. I'm eternally separated from the vine, and my life doesn't change anything ultimately. And my life is an ultimate disappointment to me as well. That's the nothing. Because the only source of real, ongoing significance is found in eternal life connected to the vine. So he's drawing a contrast. The other thing that I get is judgment. 
right? Those verses that say the, verse, the branches that aren't fruitful, they get cut off and thrown away and burned. That's speaking of judgment. Now, just a little quick side note. Some of us have probably wrestled with that and wondered, wait, how can that be? If you're in the vine and you're, you know, you're Christian and then you're, how do you lose yours? It, that's, if you're going to read the Bible literally, one of the most important things to do is let it set the terms. This is a metaphor. He is using a word picture and he's using it for a specific direction. Don't press it too hard. He's not trying to answer the question can a Christian lose their salvation? What is apostasy? He's not, he's not dealing with that. Saying, my people are in the vine and they're fruitful. Anything that's not fruitful is removed, because it's not my people, and burnt. It's under judgment. So there's the pattern he's laying out. He's saying, look, everything's changing for them. He said, everything's changing tomorrow. <laughs> and it's going to happen really fast. And you guys need to understand, all of history is about to pivot, and a whole new reality is coming in, and it's really awesome. And you get to be a part of it, and your life can be extraordinary. Not without trouble, not without struggle. Most of them died martyrs. You know, it's, it's not this Pollyanna and naive thing. It's serious, but there's something fundamentally shifted that you get to be a part of, and I'm calling you to live in that and to be a part of me expanding this in the world, right? It's actually addressing the same thing that drives every human heart. How do I be the best me? Well, I better not trust myself because my map is wrong. And he's saying, I've got the map. Here's how it works. You're bonded to me. Live that reality out. And in this, he gives us now two things that we can focus on. Two areas that we can lean into, that we can meditate on, that we can adjust life around, that we can pray about, that we can cooperate with him in, and we can see this increasingly be our experience. And those two things are the words that we called out, right? Abide, love. And remember, at the very beginning, I said, don't forget what the great commandment is. We're going to pull that back in. This is dealing with my relationship with God and my relationship with you. Saying there's this, it's like, wow, it's, it's like consistent. He's, this is, in a way, it's like the great commandment. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that your relationship with God is in good standing, and I want you to make sure your relationship with each other is on good standing, and here's how to do that. Abide. Um, and I'm going to give you another phrase that may help you with it, and that is stir up your relationship with God. Abide. Stir up your relationship with God. And then love step up in your relationship with others. Love, step up in your relationship with others. Abide is, I, I'm already part of the, if, if, I'm, if I belong to Christ, he says I am in him already. That's objectively true. It's objectively true of them. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples, not the crowd. These are people that are already connected. So why is he also telling them you're connected? So be connected. That seems confusing. And it's actually one of the fundamental principles of living a fruitful life is that I would learn to appropriate, live into by faith, lean into what's true of me, cooperate with that, right? I am part of Christ. I do have his life flowing through me. He is a vine. I'm the branch. The sap flows through me. Fruit comes. And he's saying, good, good. 
Now lean into that. And he gives us several different things. He says, abide in me. He says, abide in my love. And he says, essentially, abide in my word. Technically, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. But in context, it's like, these are the things that you saturate yourself with. The relationship with me, the love that I have for you, you're living in light of that, you're enjoying that, you're accessing that, and you're saturating yourself in the word. But how do I make true, in my experience, something that's actually already true? How do I abide when I'm already connected? I think um, I'll give you an illustration from church history that I think is really helpful. And I think it has to do with the, the attentiveness of my heart. Something that's objectively true, that's supposed to be subjectively lived and experienced, a lot of the issue is the attentiveness of my heart, the focus of my heart. And um, years ago, uh, probably the most influential theologian other than the Apostle Paul who ever lived, because the other most influential theologians all relied heavily on him, was a guy named Augustine. And he lived around 400 AD. And he's known as this great theologian, but actually his primary calling was to be a pastor. And so we have a lot of, a lot of his writings, and a lot of it's just pastoral letters and those kinds of things. And there was a woman who was really wrestling with Romans 8, where it says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought to pray, but God himself intercedes for us, the Holy Spirit you know, groans on our behalf. And there's, it's a very encouraging verse to say, you know, when we don't get it, God does, and he's going to work on our behalf because it's a messed up place and we struggle, right? But she, that's all fine, but she wanted to know, but what should I pray? Can you help me know a little better at least what I should pray for? And Augustine gave her a very interesting answer, one that I think is perhaps a little jarring for some of us. He said, pray that you would be happy. Now, there's whole branches of the church that will continue to perpetuate that, but ours tends to say, don't pray that. That's not what it's about. Don't pray to be happy. Don't worry about that. That's a byproduct. What's Augustine doing? Is he just off on the wrong track? No, he was trying to get to something deeper. He said, pray that you would be happy, and then he said, pray this, and he gave her this verse. Psalm 20, in fact, Nate quoted it earlier. Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Pray that you'd be happy, that you would live in the presence of the Lord, that you would experience intimacy with the Lord, that you would have this worshipful, joyful, daily moment-by-moment connection with the Lord. That's how you're going to be happy. That was Augustine's advice. He knows more than we do. I think he got it right. We should probably listen. I know Jesus is right, and that's essentially what he's saying. Abide. Everything flows from that. You have this relationship, but it's not just this objective reality. Okay, now I'm connected to God. It is supposed to be your daily empowering experience. And you go through the various mechanical components of a Christian life, and that will certainly be fruitful and helpful, but do so with a heart posture that is turned towards God continually, that is seeking God, right? Um, Augustine said, pray Psalm 27, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord, and, and his temple figures in there. I was reading the temple narrative this week in my daily reading, and 
There's this long prayer, many of you are familiar with Solomon prays when the temple is dedicated. And one of the things that I find interesting is he prays all these different things that can go wrong because he knows people, right? He, he are one. And he's got that. It's like, yeah, these are my people. They're messed up just like me. <laughs> so God, when we mess up, and then he lists off all these things. When, when you send in foreign powers to take over and oppress and we're getting defeated and blah, 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 if your people will pray towards this temple, hear them, and rescue them. When we have famines and disease and pestilence, Lord, if your people will pray towards this temple, hear them, deliver them. Over and over again, all these different scenarios. And it's the same idea, pray towards the temple. Why? The temple was... At that point in time, it still is, by the way, but you know where the temple is? Here, which just takes this passage in John 15, makes it all the more significant. But temple was the place where the presence of God was manifest, where you could meet with God. And so what he's saying, God, if we mess up and we orient our hearts towards you and seek you, show up, please. And you, know, you read all that stuff that he does and God answers, I'm paraphrasing here, Okay, I can do that. I'll do that. You orient your heart towards me, I'll show up. Jesus says, abide. I'm already part of the vine. I'm, already, I'm eternally secure. How do I abide? Orient your heart continually toward me. How do you do that? Well, I don't know. That, that, there's all kinds of ways. Read the word, pray, you know, you know those specific things. What do I need to do right now? Well, that's something you gotta figure out. And I think sometimes we struggle, I'm not sure how to connect with God, and I think that's masquerading as something else. It would be like a guy coming into my office, he's been married for 30 years, and he says, uh, yeah, things aren't going great. We're, I mean, marriage is okay, but we're kind of struggling a little bit, and we talk a little bit, and it, it seems like, well, the answer is actually pretty straightforward. You just need to start dating your wife again. And he says to me, how do I do that? What do you mean, how do you do that? You date, you've done that. I mean, she's your wife, right? She didn't just show up at your house one day and say, I'm moving in, took your names, so did the license, yeah, we're good. Right, there must have been something going on, do that. If I have a relationship with God, I have a history of connecting with him at some level, do that. I know what to do often, I just don't want to change things. What I want is the change to happen without me changing, <laughs> and that's the problem. It's like, just, well, that's going to be hard. Well, maybe. That's why Jesus says, abide. Continue to lean into this relationship. Continue to orient your heart towards God. Whatever it takes to guard that. Now, it'll be an up and down thing through life. But if I'm abiding, which also includes the idea of remaining in steadfastness, it's not just a up and down. It's a up and down where it's going up, Right? What are the things that I need to do? What helps you to connect with God? If you're having a hard time connecting with God, fight for it. He says the foundation that is all supposed to flow from is this abiding relationship. How's that relationship? What attention? What do I need to do to stir up my relationship with God? Now, if you really don't know how, that probably means one of two things. One, you actually don't have a relationship 
so you don't have a clue. We'd love to talk to you because God would like nothing more than for you to have that relationship. Jesus died on a cross to reconcile you and me to him. It doesn't come naturally. God's my creator, but he's not my father in a personal sense until I respond. I'm still one of those fake branches. I'm not actually in the vine. And if you're not in the vine, we can help you understand what that means, and you can respond to God. Love to do that. Reach out. Or maybe you're really new to the faith, in which case the best way to learn how to walk with Jesus is to walk with other people that are walking with Jesus. There is nothing better than that. Get into some good Christian community. If you need help with that, we'll help you. But connect. Share the journey with others, right? So Jesus says, abide. That's kind of the first thing. And then the second thing he leans into, he says, okay, now, um, out of that relationship, it's going to flow into all the other relationships, so love. Abide, you stir up your relationship with God. Love, you step up your relationship with others. Love is super important. I mean, that's a, that's a trivialization of how important it is. That's just a dumb sentence. I, I, I would have to really craft something to catch how significant it is. It is foundational. It is the sine qua non, if you want some Latin. We haven't thrown that in a while. There you go. I, I, I threw that in for free. It is absolutely central. Love, it, it, would, be, it would be pretty much impossible to overestimate how important love is to our relationship with God, to being his people. We won't turn there, but in Revelation chapter 2, many of you will be familiar, Jesus is talking to various churches, and the first one he talks to is amazing. In fact, it's one that I think we have a lot of resonance with. It's the church in Ephesus, and these people are passionate to, to be right and to do right and to live without compromise and they don't listen to false teachers and they, they stand for what's true and they engage in the word, all these things. And Jesus praises them for those things. He said, but I do have this against you. You've lost the love that you had at first. Now the question is, how significant is that against you? I mean, he said a lot of good stuff. Well, then he goes on and says, so you need to repent and see how far you've fallen, or your church is done. How important is that? You won't even be a church anymore if you don't get back to love. All the other things, you're, this is a really good message and prayer for us to pray for the church today, huh? A lot of attention on important things. This is right, this is wrong, do this, do that. We will not be the church of Jesus Christ. He will pull the candlestick if love disappears. Love is uncompromisable. Or at a personal level, right? 1 Corinthians 13 says, you know, I can do these, I can give my body, I can be a martyr, you can burn me at the stake, I can preach amazing sermons, I can tell everyone. You know, if I don't have love, my life is literally just noise. So Jesus is saying, this new reality has come, you're part of me, you're to be abundantly fruitful, that's the that's the cool thing. You got to abide, and that has to express itself in a radical love for each other that will spill out into the world. Look at what he says about the love. Chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Wow, that's a lot. And then he goes on to describe part of that. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is just before he lays down his life for his friends. Right, it's not love as you have space. Love as you have energy. Love as you have interest. It's like love as I have loved. I'm, I'm not talking about that dabbling love that can fit on the list somewhere. I'm talking about that devoted lay your life down for each other love. That's what I'm looking for. He's talking to his disciples, says, look at each other. That's your calling for each other. That's our calling for us. Remember what our mission is, right? It's been a while since we've talked about it, but it says this. We want to partner with Jesus in giving our community and the world a better story and a better family modeled on Christ's redeeming love. That's this. I have the story for your life, and it's amazing, and I want you to be a totally different kind of family because that will change the world. That's how I'm going to work. So let me ask a couple of things that maybe can bring it home for us as, as we all, oh, oh yeah, I want to be loving. What does that look like? Well, first thing, um, I'll give you three tests that maybe could be helpful. The first one is the um, reorienting test. Love always involves reorienting or it's not love, right? In, in this passage, twice he says, if you're loving me, you're going to obey. In John 14, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, he says, keep my commandments and you'll abide in my love. It's like this chicken egg kind of dynamic how does that work? It sounds kind of restrictive and it's like demeaning. I got a lot, you know. No, that's what love does. Love reorients around the one who is loved. I married my wife 35 years ago next week. I can't say, I love you. I'm going to keep doing everything I want, spend the money the way I want, time the way I want, you know. But if you want to be a part of that, as long as it fits me, then I love you. That's not love. That's love me, and I hope you love me enough to completely sacrifice your life for me because I'm just going to live for me. Any parent knows this little invader comes into your home and everything reorients. You can resent that. You can celebrate that, but you can't avoid that. And a loving parent says, you know, I willingly reorient life around that. Well, when, when we have a relationship with the one person who actually knows what they're talking about in every circumstance and is always right, then that means reorienting is just obey him. Whatever he says, that's right. Do that. So reorienting of my life, how's that going? When you look at the people around you, how much do you allow your life to be reoriented? Let me speak to us as introverts and extroverts for a second. You know I'm a flaming introvert. So here's, here's two words that I need to keep in my mind. Passive versus pursuing. I actually like people. I like people more than I think probably most people like people. I get along really easily and well and find people interesting as far as they go. But I also like me. I'm a people and I, my company's just fine. I'm happy with me and I don't drain my energy like you do. As wonderful as you are, you take energy from me and I just give energy to me. So this people can be with this people perfectly content. And if you show up in my world, unless it's at the wrong time, in which case I might close the door, but otherwise, like, yeah, okay, welcome. I'm, I'm open, but it's passive. 
That's not very loving. I'm supposed to pursue. Those of us that are introverts, how are you pursuing? How are you pursuing? I think it's a little different for extroverts because extroverts are always out there. And there's this idea that an extrovert is automatically a people person. I don't buy that. And if you're an extrovert and have thought about it, you probably don't buy it either. The question is not, are you around people? The question is why? Some of us go nuts when people aren't around because we're bored, we're tired, we want to be entertained, we want to be entertaining, we want to tell our story. It's all about me getting my stuff out there. That's why you need to be around. You're like a a prop for my life and I got to have this. So here's here's, here's the question for extroverts that I think could be helpful. How much of it is about me and how much of it is about them? I think that can maybe penetrate because I love being around people, but, and that's, that's fine. I mean, I need my needs met too. That's not wrong per se, but the loving thing is saying, I'm, I'm cutting through this natural, ah, people, ah, and I'm actually zeroing in on those who have needs and showing them real compassion and love. There's one test. Another test is the John 3.16 test, which says, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave. Where's the directional arrow of your life? Pointing towards others? Are you giver or not? Are you making a way to be pouring into people's lives and give or not? Last one I would suggest is what I would call the blessing test. And this has to do with my prayer life. It'll help me key in pretty quickly how my love is because what's my prayer life look like? I'm always asking for blessing. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what it fundamentally is to be a created being with an all-powerful creator. It honors him. I'm his child and he's my father. It honors him. Ask him. He says, ask me. But how often am I asking, I want this, I want this, I want this, I need this, I need this, I need this. It can be something or it can be some experience or it could be some whatever, right? Free me from this problem. I should be asking about those things, but how often does it shift from not I want to receive a blessing to I want to be a blessing? God, help me love. Help me minister. Help me serve. It's hard right now. This person is really obnoxious. You know that. You created them. I don't know why you created them that way. They're obnoxious. If everyone were just like me, God, you could have fixed the universe. What's the matter? Don't tell me you haven't had those prayers at some time, right? So whenever you find yourself in that spot, it's like, well, I need to love anyway. What is it? How do I do that? How much of my prayer is bless me and how much of it is let me be a blessing? Both should be there, but there should be some recognizable parity in my percentages there. Jesus says, look, everything shifts. Stay in me. Actively cultivate that. Stir up your relationship with me and step up to love others. Lord, I do thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. And we um, ask for more. We ask that you would bless us more and allow us to be more of a blessing. We ask that we would have a deeper sense of your presence, active and vibrant every day. And then out of that would flow all of the fruit of life as you work. And we would love well. That we as a church would be known for loving. 
Lord, thank you for the things that you have provided. As, as we receive this offering right now, I ask that we use this for your purposes in this world and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.